we are in a season of the life of the church where we are pursuing the person of the Holy Spirit. And this is kind of like the last section of how I uh, thought about this uh, series would go, where we're talking about spiritual gifts. And the way we're talking about spiritual gifts is we're just basically looking at a chunk of 1 Corinthians from chapter 12 all the way through chapter 14. And we find ourselves in chapter 13. Now, I think this is probably one of the more famous chapters in the Bible, even if you are not a Christian, even if you're not a believer, because oftentimes when you go to weddings, this is a chapter that you will hear. And I think a lot of times uh, people like to use this chapter at weddings because it just sounds nice. It's about love and uh, it sounds very poetic and it's just a nice thing to read at that kind of occasion. Uh, But if you notice, it's actually not about marriage at all, right? It's in the context of spiritual gifts. And of course, I don't have a problem applying this passage to marriage or using it for a wedding. But at least for our purposes here today, you should know and you should recognize that when Paul is thinking about love, when he is writing this beautiful chapter about love, he is actually thinking about it in the context of the church community. And he is thinking about it in the context of how the church uses spiritual gifts. You see, the Corinthian church, as I've mentioned in previous weeks, is a kind of a dysfunctional church. And they were divided over uh, a few things. And one of the things that they were divided over was the proper use of spiritual gifts. And so uh, there was division. And Paul is addressing that division here in this section. Now, as with many things that are glorious in the Christian life, Uh, I think there's always this balance, or maybe a better word to to use, is there is always this tension that has to be maintained. So on the one hand, I think we have to say spiritual gifts are incredibly important. They are things to be pursued. They are things that we should earnestly seek and desire, which we'll see in chapter 14. On the other hand, spiritual gifts have to be placed in their proper context in order for them to be even useful at all. And that's what chapter 13 is talking about because it's saying that the proper context of using spiritual gifts is actually love. It's love. Now, um, this week I I met with our retreat speaker and uh, I'm not sure if I shared this with everybody, but we had to have a little switch in a retreat speaker and um, the first retreat speaker couldn't make it because he's having a fourth, fourth child around that time and his wife has been having kind of a tough pregnancy. So he was like, um, you know, it might not be wise. I don't want to back out on you the last minute, but I have this great guy who, who can sp- uh, preach for you, and I already talked to him, and he's willing. So I met with him this week. His name is Mike Terrigiano, and uh, I, th- I think it's really God's providence that he is speaking for our retreat. So he's, you know, he's actually part of, I don't know if you know the Vineyard Movement, but he, uh, he's an older guy. He's been in New York for many, many years. He's planted two churches in New York. Uh, he's based in Brooklyn right now. And <clears throat> I, I spent some time with him this week, and I think he's actually one of the spiritual fathers of New York because uh, he mentors and coaches a lot of pastors, actually a lot of pastors that I know <laughs> here in the city, and that's kind of his main ministry now as he is p- in his post-60s. And uh, he wrote this book called I'm No Superman uh, about Holy Spirit ministry for the ordinary person, and he gave me a copy this week. And so I started reading it, and it's actually filled with so much wisdom and so much insight. So I'm really excited uh, about the retreat, and I think it's going to be an incredible time of growth for us individually, but also as a church. But as I was reading, I want to read you uh, one paragraph from the book where he says something really insightful about spiritual gifts, and this is what he says. He says this, The process of discovering spiritual gifts is more like falling in love than learning algebra. There is a relational dynamic to it. You don't have to understand love to fall in love. We become acquainted with spiritual gifts and gain facility in exercising them through personal relationship with the giver of gifts and participation in community, the body of Christ. 
Spiritual gifts are caught through modeling and impartation at least as much as they're taught. Like love, the more I experience the gifts, the more familiar they become. And the more familiar I become with them, the more maturely I exercise them, and more deeply I can enjoy the satisfaction of operating in them. Now, the reason why I thought that was a very insightful way of putting it is because uh, my guess is when we think about gifts, we probably equate them to something like talents or something that we have to learn, like a kind of a how-to manual. But he's actually placing it in the context of relationship, especially in relationship to who God is and the person of the Holy Spirit. And uh, you know, I was kind of trying to articulate that last week, but then I read this and I was like, oh, he says it much better than I uh, said it, so I, I thought I would read it. But uh, he also makes that explicit connection that Paul is making between the exercise of spiritual gifts and love, right? And that's what Paul is making here uh, in this chapter. This chapter naturally breaks down into three sections, so I'm just going to follow the, the structure of the passage. But the first part talks about the necessity of love, the second part talks about the picture of love. And then finally, the third part talks about the permanence of love. So first, the necessity of love. Paul, he starts here by talking about some really extraordinary spiritual gifts like speaking in tongues, like the gift of prophecy. And maybe some of you aren't really sure what that is or uh, what he's talking about. And so uh, I think I will... Uh, talk about some of these things as we get to chapter 14. But for now, let's just call these gifts uh, extraordinary gifts that people would be drawn to and people would view uh, as extraordinary. And they are the kind of gifts that probably would have gotten people's attention, not only in this age, but back then. And he uses these extraordinary gifts to make a very simple point, which is this. Even the most extraordinary gifts are not very extraordinary without love. That's a simple point. That's worth reflecting on because I think it is so easy for us to get enamored with people who have extraordinary gifts, whatever they may be. Uh, New York City, I think, tends to draw uh, some very gifted people. And in the economy of the world, people are usually elevated for uh, more often for their gifts rather than their character. And oftentimes you see the same thing happening in the church as well. You know, a person might be really gifted in a certain area. A person might be a really gifted musician, or a person might be a very charismatic leader, or a person might be a very uh, eloquent and powerful teacher. And then all of a sudden, they might get placed in positions of leadership and given a platform over time. Uh, and then uh, eventually, maybe over time, their character gets revealed, and it's not great character, and things start to fall apart. But it's very easy to be drawn with to people with extraordinary gifts. And we have to be careful that we don't over-inflate the importance of gifts over against character because giftedness is not the same thing as love or as character. Uh, I mentioned this story a couple weeks ago, not during a sermon, but I just like thought about it, and I'm going to repeat the story here. But uh, I, when a few of us a couple of years ago, we were in Georgia, uh, the country, not the state, right? We were in uh, Eastern Europe on the prayer march. And we had this really intense prayer meeting with uh, a bunch of Iranian believers. And there was this one uh, believer in particular who had this like abundance of spiritual gifts. And he was kind of leading the group. I'm not sure if he was a pastor, but he was like leading the group. And his story is really incredible. Uh, he used to be a very devout Muslim in Iran. And he worked as a very high-level bodyguard in the government. So I think he was protecting some of the highest government officials. And he had this miraculous encounter with Christ. And 
he became a, a Christian. Uh, you actually hear a lot of those kind of testimonies coming out of Iran where people would have dreams or people would have visions of Jesus or they would just like pick up a New Testament and start reading it and all of a sudden they would have this encounter with God and become a, a Christian believer even without the uh, intervention of a missionary. And so this guy, he had this radical conversion experience and uh, God really filled him and imparted uh, these powerful spiritual gifts in him. So while we were praying, um, you know, I, this is like probably the first time uh, I remember it ever happening. I don't remember ever having this experience. But while we were praying, uh, I had this like vision of a fireball. And I was trying to ignore it. And I was trying to say, um, you know, just focus on prayer itself. But then this like picture of a, of a ball of fire <laughs> just was like in, in my uh, mind. And I just couldn't shake it. And, uh, you know, I kind of ignored it. I didn't, I didn't think anything of it. But then later in that prayer meeting, this uh this Iranian believer, this leader, he tells everybody to, to stand and to kind of lift up their hands. And he says, I'm going to put a ball of fire in each of your hands, right? So when he said that, I'm like, whoa, right? Whoa. Uh, it, it, I, the Spirit of God is really trying to, to communicate something to me. You want to hear a funny story, though? You know, I'm very soft-spoken, and uh, I don't have a very loud voice. So uh, later on, I was telling the missionary, I was like, you know, I saw this vision of a, of a ball of fire, but he heard me say wall of fire, Right? And uh, so I think he connected it to this uh, picture in Zechariah 2 where um, this village is without walls and God says, I will be to you a wall of fire. So it's like a, uh, a theological statement of protection, right? And then he kept saying, yeah, yeah like yeah, Sam saw a vision of a wall of fire. I'm like, did he say wall or ball, right? So he's, he's saying wall. So I went back to him. I was like, no, I didn't say wall. I said ball of fire. And then he was like, oh, that's even closer. I was like, yeah. <laughs> that's why it was like so, um, so amazing to me. But anyway, <clears throat> uh, we were just kind of talking about this guy, and he was like, yeah, he, he's, God's given him this ab an abundance of spiritual gifts. Um, but he was also saying, you know, he grew a lot. So I guess when he first became a believer, he was really immature. He was very arrogant, and yet he had, like, an extraordinary abundance of these spiritual gifts. And he was kind of just saying, yeah, I don't know the answer to this, but I wonder why God gives, like, an abundance of gifts to people whose characters are not yet formed because uh, that can be a very... Uh, dangerous combination, and I've seen it used in um, very poor ways. Um, but uh, that just kind of reminded me, you know, an abundance of gifts is not the same thing as somebody who has love or somebody who is mature in character. And that's why when you see Paul talking about the qualifications of an elder or a deacon, uh, almost all of the qualifications has to do with character traits, not necessarily gifts. The only gift that's mentioned there is the gift of teaching. And so we should desire, pursue, and use the gifts that God has given us, but we have to put these gifts in the context, in the right context, and I, that context has to be love. Love has to be there. Now, the reason why the extraordinary gifts of a person, I think, captivates us is because it's just much easier to, to judge a person. Uh, I don't mean judge a person by, like, morally right or morally right, but just kind of, like, uh, survey a person and maybe even a person's usefulness to us based on their gifts. Uh, I've mentioned this a couple times, but I think it's dangerous when you follow uh, a, a leader or a preacher just because they have extraordinary speaking gifts or maybe they have extraordinary gifts of communication and they can uh, cast vision uh, in a powerful way without really knowing them and without being able to discern their character. Uh, these last few years, uh, you know, there's a lot of stories about these famous pastors of like mega churches where they have uh, fallen because of arrogance or heavy-handed leadership or manipulation or deceit. 
and a lot of people get affected by it. But then if you think about the people who get affected by it, they don't really know these people. They're kind of looking at them from through the internet, <laughs> right? And so uh, it's much easier to see a person's giftedness, right, than to discern their characters. You can see whether a person can teach or preach, but you can't really always see how they treat strangers. Uh, you can see whether a person is, uh, can speak accurate words of prophecy, but you don't usually see how this person might treat their family. And so as we rightly, eagerly desire, seek, encourage spiritual gifts, Paul is saying this as well, there has to be love. Otherwise, no matter how extraordinary these spiritual gifts are, they're useless, right? They're useless. If I have tongues but not love, it's just a noisy gong or a clang simple. If I have prophetic powers, understand all mysteries, all knowledge, uh, have all faith to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Even in generosity, if I give everything I have away, deliver my body to be burned if I'm a martyr but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is necessary. Now, if love is a necessity, then uh, I think we, we want to know what love looks like, right? And that leads to our second point, the picture of love. Love is uh, a very ubiquitous word in our culture. Everybody uses the word love, but I think in our culture it's reduced to a sentiment or it's reduced to a feeling. So I don't actually think a lot of people have this concrete understanding of uh, what love is supposed to look like. And uh, just by way of example, I did hear a story from a pastor, and he was telling a story of a man who had been in you know, several relationships with women and had you know, been in these like, long-term relationships, but then these relationships didn't work out. And, you know, he wasn't a Christian believer, but he's like, he was, he was searching for something. So he decided to go to church uh, to deal with, like, all the turmoil in his heart. And the pastor on that day he went to church actually preached from this text from 1 Corinthians chapter 13 about how uh, we should uh, love one another and gave this picture of love. So he, he felt compelled to talk to this pastor. And after the service, he went to the pastor. He said, you know, uh, I thought I knew what love is, but... Uh, as I read this text, I'm not really sure what love is. What's love? You know, I thought I loved all of my uh, ex-girlfriends, but, you know, I don't think I did anymore, right? If I were to ask myself, was I patient with them? Was I kind to them? Was I uh, seeking their good or was I seeking my own good? Like, if I were to ask these kind of questions, I would say I probably did not really love them. And I think the picture of love is really important because it gets beyond feeling, it gets beyond sentiment, but it causes us to reflect on these concrete realities of are we loving people? Do we love in such ways? I was reading some sermons. You know, Jonathan Edwards is like a theologian that has influenced many people. You know how many sermons he wrote on this chapter alone? He wrote 16 sermons on just First Corinthians <laughs> chapter 13, right? So I was just kind of browsing uh, some of the sermons. And he takes an entire sermon to devote, he devotes one sermon to each characteristic of love listed in this chapter. Uh, I am not going to do that. I think this is uh, probably the only time I'll preach on this chapter. But I do want to move from the forest and get into the trees a little bit and be a little bit more self-reflective on some of these details about what love is. Because... If love is found in the context of relationship, then our spiritual gifts will be used in that same context of those relationships. And that's why, for the most part, spiritual gifts are not meant for self-edification, although I think there are certain exceptions. But spiritual gifts are ultimately meant to build up the body. So let's reflect on a few of these qualities of love. It says this, love is patient and kind. Why is patience so important? Well, I think a spirit of judgment comes from impatience, right? 
when we judge people, we are saying that this person is not at a certain level or a certain standard that we expect them to be, and we don't give them time to grow into it, right? Uh, that could be related to maturity, that could be related to passion, that could be related to competence, and without patience, we become judgmental, and when there is judgment, you, what you'll oftentimes find is there's an absence of love. And I think this applies to spiritual growth as well. Uh, if you've had this experience, uh, some of you have been part of, uh, I don't know, retreats. Maybe you've been part of uh, missionary trips. Uh, I know some of you have been part of these prayer marches. And there are these really intense spiritual experiences. And you kind of come back filled with like a lot of passion. You're like, oh, I really want to serve the Lord. And then you get back to church. And church is discouraging right? Because your, your passion is up here, and then everybody else is like here, and it's like, why doesn't everybody else have the same amount of passion? And then you kind of get frustrated, and you start to judge uh, the people in the church, and you're like, come on, uh, they're not as passionate for the things of the Lord as I am. And that kind of impatience, right? God is growing people in his own time, but that kind of impatience leads to what? Judgment. And you judge people for not being at a certain level spiritually, and it becomes frustrating. And when you judge them, guess what? You won't use your spiritual gifts to love and to build them up. Likewise, you need kindness. Kindness is a very underrated quality, but kindness is incredibly important when it comes to building people up. Uh, if you have ever had to give a word of correction to anybody, a word of rebuke in order to build them up, doing it with kindness makes a huge difference, right? The best kind of, I learned this from Pastor John, the previous pastor here, he says the best kind of rebuke is a one where the person feels challenged and encouraged at the end, uh, encouraged and challenged to repent and to pursue God even deeper. The best kind of rebuke is a one where the person doesn't even feel like they're being rebuked at all. Now, how do you receive, how do you get rebuked without ever feeling like you're being rebuked? I think there has to be an abundance of kindness. If you were to ask me, has Pastor John ever rebuked me? Has he ever corrected me? In one sense, I would say, mm, I don't think he has ever done that because I don't actually remember feeling like bad after uh, him talking to me. But then if I really think about it, he's followed that to a T with me because he has corrected me, but it just didn't feel like he was rebuking me. <laughs> so in another sense, I would say, yeah, actually many times he has rebuked me. He has corrected me uh, on several occasions, but it just didn't feel like a rebuke at the time. And I think one of the reasons is when he, he did it, it was filled with an abundance of kindness. And therefore, when it's filled with an abundance of kindness, it, it, a rebuke is actually not supposed to tear people down. It is supposed to build people up and it is supposed to encourage them and uh, ultimately not just make them better, but make them uh, make their relationship with God and what God is calling them to do um, better. And so it's supposed to be a good thing. Kindness does that. Um, I'm going to group the next set of behaviors and uh, just for the sake of time and say this, uh, love also does not inflate the self. That's definitely one of the problems in the Corinthian church because when you think of yourself as better than others, what happens? You become arrogant, you become rude, you become self-seeking. And I think we all know what arrogance looks like. I think every, we all know what insisting on your own way looks like. But let me just take out one of these qualities to reflect on. Uh, rude, okay? Rude. <laughs> when you are rude, and we're in New York, everybody's rude all the time. Uh, I'm very rude all the time too. Uh, when you are rude, think about what's actually going on inside of your heart. I think one of the things that's there is usually you think you are better than the other person and therefore the other person is not really worthy of your respect. 
They're not worthy of being spoken to in a respectful manner. They're not worthy of being treated decently. We might think of maybe because of who they are, maybe because of what they do, how they've failed, what they've said, or a number of other things. We say, well, it's okay to treat this person in a rude manner. I think rudeness comes from a place where uh, we've inflated ourselves, where we think we are inherently better than the other person. If you think you are better than others, then you are going to use your spiritual gifts to ultimately build up yourself. You are going to use your spiritual gifts to elevate your status, elevate your influence, elevate your popularity, even elevate your own personal happiness. And that was the problem of this church. There were some extraordinarily gifted people, but they lacked love. And you know what? Paul even says this in the beginning of 1 Corinthians, I cannot even address you as spiritual people. Yeah, you speak in tongues. Yeah, you have good words of prophecy. Yeah, you have these extraordinary gifts. But guess what? Because you have not love, because you divide the church, you are not spiritual at all. Rather, you are fleshly people. You see, love is a necessity of how we use our spiritual gifts properly. Love is incredibly important in order to build up the body and use what God has given us the way he intended us to use it. Now, again, for the sake of time, uh, I'm not going to look at the rest of the details, but I guess I would encourage you, uh, maybe take one quality each day of this week and just kind of reflect upon it and ask yourself, do I have love for people, right? And uh, that might be a good exercise this week. But now I want to zoom out and let's look at the forest for a minute. As I said, one of the reasons why this chapter is used in weddings is... It's beautiful, right? It's very beautifully written. It sounds like poetry. Uh, and so I kind of find this funny too, right? It's about spiritual gifts. Uh, you hear it at weddings. I don't know if anybody actually pays attention to the words because uh, if I were to read this and I was like not familiar with the Bible or Christianity, I would say, what is it talking about when it talks about tongues or prophecy, right? But people tend to forget that part and just kind of focus on the beautiful aspect of love. But notice this. Notice how love is personified here. In verse 6, it says this, right, talking about love. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Verse 7, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Aren't those verbs something that you would associate with a person, right? A person rejoices. A person bears all things. A person believes all things. A person hopes all things. A person endures all all things. Love is being personified here. Now, personification is a literary device, and it's a way to make something come alive. It's a way to make something maybe a little less abstract and a little bit more concrete. Uh, personification is done all over the Bible. In uh, Proverbs, right? Proverbs personifies wisdom. Proverbs is a, uh, is a woman. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul personifies death. He goes, oh, death, oh, death, where is your sting? Jesus personifies money when he says, you can't serve both God and mammon. You see, turning a quality into a person is kind of like this literary way of making you think about the reality of what this thing is and make it, in a way, you make it come alive, right? When it comes to the personification of love here, I would say this, it is probably more than just a literary device. I think it is a statement of spiritual reality. Why? According to 1 John 4, 8, it says God is love. God is love. It doesn't say God has love or God is loving, although those things are true. 
it says God is love. Um, let me say something that's maybe a little uh, high-level theology, but um, bear with me. I think it's worth, uh, worth knowing. You know, in theological studies, uh, there is something called the simplicity of God. And what the simplicity of God is saying, it's not saying that God is simple, uh, but what it's saying is God's being is the same as his attributes. Um, so that means, you know, God uh, doesn't have holiness, but he is holy. So it's an attribute, but it's also who he is in his essence. When it says that God is love, right, it's not just saying God has love, but in his essence, his attribute of love is the same as who he is in his being. Those things are one and the same. And so when you see, when you look at this picture of love, it not only tells us how we should love others, but it also gives us a picture of who God is in his being. God is love. And he, he the way we see, one of the most powerful ways we see the expression of who he is in his being is most powerfully on the cross, right? God was patient with us. Why? He didn't judge us when we were at our worst. He didn't judge us when we were most deserving of it. He restrained his judgment so that Jesus might take our judgment upon himself when he died upon the cross. God was very kind to us. God was very merciful to us because he didn't count our sins against us, but he gave us this gift of life and this gift of salvation. Jesus himself bore the weight of sin and endured the curse of the cross as an ultimate expression of love for us. And therefore, we are not simply receiving a message as though we were uh, receiving a system of philosophy, uh, but it's through this message of the gospel that we actually receive God himself. It's through this message of the gospel where we actually receive love himself. And when God lives within us, you know what that means? Love lives within us as well. And when love lives within us, that's where we get the power to be able to love others like Christ has loved us. You see that? It's not just like uh, you got to love people and will it in yourself. It is this. Receive Christ through the gospel. Receive God into your heart. Allow him to dwell in you in the person of the Holy Spirit. And as he dwells in you, Love will also dwell in you. And through that dwelling, you will now be enabled to love others the way he has loved us. But you see, when we fail to love, what we actually do is we're betraying the spiritual reality. And when we fail to love, um, we're failing to live out our identity in terms of who God made us to be, right? There's an inconsistency there. You see, this leads to the final point, which is going to be uh, much shorter. That's why love is permanent. You know, when we are with God in eternity, um, you know, there's a lot of things I don't know about what that will look like, but uh, it sounds like our gifts will pass away, or at least many of them. Uh, you know, Paul says here, we will be perfected, right? And based on verse 12, it sounds like part of perfection means we will know fully, right, even as we are fully known, but we will know fully. If everybody knows fully in eternity, you don't really need certain gifts anymore. You don't need prophecy. <laughs> you don't need gift of knowledge. You don't need the gift of teaching because who is there to teach? Everybody knows everything, right? So certain gifts will 
fade away. Maybe all gifts will fade away. You won't need the gift of healing because in the resurrection, everybody will be healed completely and fully, healed even of death itself. So our gifts will pass away, but you know what Paul is saying here? You know what will remain? You know what will always be there, not only in this world, but in the world to come? Love. Love is eternal. Love never ends. Even in the triune God, uh, even without us, there was love within the community of the Godhead. There will always be love. And so as we pursue love, also know that we are pursuing God himself, who is love himself. Let's pray together.